You're listening to Two Girls, One Crossword. Uh, I will never forget the time I had to tell you to move your mouth, and you're like, oh, I'm practicing my ventriloquism. (laughs) (laughs) The amount of times that I had to sync our audio with you doing the countdown without moving your mouth is higher than one. Sometimes I don't have to move my mouth to talk, but I feel like I do the finger. I do my fingers. You most often do, but I feel like this time you were like, I was like, five, four, three, yeah. <laughs> two, one. And, and like, you know, not for nothing, but your fingers don't make noise when, um, oh, you put I them see, down. You do it, but we do it with sound. I the sound now. waves. Yeah. Okay. But, um, every time we count down now, I think about that. Just a little <laughs> core memory for me. Just behind the scenes with Chelsea and how I ruined her life. <laughs> but we're here and we're still making episodes. So we welcome everyone are. to Two Girls, One Crossword. My You're... name is Grace Topinka. I almost cut you off there because I'm insane. Uh, and I'm Chelsea Rowan. This is your favorite weekly pod word crosscast. We struggle, but ultimately... We... we come out on top. We come out on top. And you know what? Our top may not be your top. But it works for us, so. It's pride. We do what we can. We do what we can. Um, Good morning. It's another beautiful day in paradise. It is. Shall we get to our, just jump right into our Polapalooza here? Let's jump into the Polapalooza. I feel like if you twist my arm the right way, I might be chatty today. So let's let's stay on topic. (laughs) Right. Uh, Sometimes (laughs) you just wake up in the mood. I had to do a little maths. Mathematics. It was was an eight-parter. So I asked, what's your favorite flower based off Chelsea's topic last week of the tulip mania in the Netherlands? And the options I gave were rose, tulip, carnation, lily, orchid, peony, sunflower, and daisy. Oh, well, first of all, what would you pick? I don't know. I don't really, like, have a favorite flower, I don't think. I don't either. I think like whatever I look at, at whatever store I'm buying flowers at, I'm like, oh, that looks gorgeous. Like right now, if you're watching on YouTube, I have a vase of carnations and I really liked them because they were two different shades of pink, but they both had like some orange flecks in it. And I was like, oh, that's so pretty. It's like my vibe. I like pinky type things. So, right. You know, I know I do feel like I had like a really strong preference because then I feel like that's such be like oh my gosh like she knows my favorite flowers and she got me my favorite flowers but right. it's like I don't really I like whatever flowers not gonna kill my cat so definitely not a lily which no one voted for by the way <gasps> um, I don't yeah <clears throat> is a lily really representative know. of death I feel like it's like a death flower I feel like carnations are the funeral flower are they this is hilarious I thought so <laughs> I don't know who knows I like I think I like peonies. I'm thinking about like what tattoos of flowers that I like. <laughs> I like peonies and chrysanthemums. Yes. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't really feel strongly either way. And but having second guesses about whether or not these are carnations. If you come on YouTube and you're like, not that you can really see them from the video, <laughs> but if you can tell from the video that these are not carnations, do not at me. They okay? look like carnations. I Thank think. you. But again, I know nothing. So um, <laughs> I'll okay. stop interrupting the, you. The number one choice was. Tulip with 28% of the vote. I'm telling you, tulip mania lives on. Right? Tulip has an effect on people. I like tulips. Fine. I I feel like I rarely ever see them like in a vase in a home, you know, or like at the grocery store. Yeah. I wonder if it's, remember what my topic said last week? Um, And if you are a gardener, if you like flowers and know more than us, uh, my topic last week, I read that they like last very shortly like they don't stick around for a long time so i wonder if that's part of the reason why they're not particularly like vase flowers i do know that you can get those tulip specific vases where you have a single Mm. stem of a tulip that you can kind of those are nice they're really nice and they're really ritzy feeling but i wonder if they're ritzy feeling because it's tulips i don't know Um, if you know more let us know please i beg you i beg you (laughs) In second place, 20, 21% of the vote was a sunflower. <gasps> a sunflower. I, li- I do like sunflowers. I like sunflower seeds. I like sunflowers, too. They're, they can get so big, though. They're kind of, like, intimidating in a way. Like, if you ever just see one, like, on the sidewalk. Sometimes, oh, some people yeah. in Chicago have them in their front yard. And I'm like, whoa. Oh, yeah. like, bigger than I am. A lot of the, like, the corner 
garden plots are like community mm-hmm. garden plots um, in the neighborhoods around us. And in one of the previous neighborhoods that I lived in, like almost all four of the plots on each of the corners had sunflowers. And I'm telling you, like these sunflower heads were like bigger than mine, like See, massive. That makes me feel a little weird. I don't know. I just don't feel like flowers should be that big. Kind it's of very like gives me the heebie-jeebies. It's like Jurassic almost, like prehistoric or very dinosaur feeling. Like the stems were like thicker than my leg. You know, you're right. Like, what like the that hell? doesn't feel right to me. It's like who <laughs> let this monstrosity get to this size? <laughs> um, okay, tied in third place was the orchid and the peony. Orchids are nice. We should go to the botanic gardens to see their the orchid room. Right. Well, orchids are kind of cool because they can, like, they die and come back to life. Yeah. Because they're not just, like, in a, you know, vase. A vase. But, a cut flower. If you um, yeah. I can't really have that many flowers because my cat tries to lick them and he throws up. Yeah. It's a bad bad time. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And then, in, oh, uh, and the peony, which I like the tattoo of a peony, so yeah. I don't really know <laughs> what it looks like in real life. Um, okay, and then it's tied in fourth place was a rose and a carnation. Okay, I do like a rose. I'm, I'm just going to say it. I like a rose. A single red rose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then in last place, with six percent of the vote, was Daisy. I feel like daisies are cute. I mean, they're summery. They're fun. They're, yeah, of course. I'm like, they come in a lot of... does a daisy look like? <laughs> nice colors. They're kind of... Is it sort of like a sunflower, but much smaller? Yes, 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 yes. They're kind of like when you draw a flower, you know? Oh, like you draw on a, a daisy. Dollar. I feel like that's like a daisy. Mm. Just very well, simple. I have a violet on my arm, a tattoo I just remembered. I'm like, well, thinking about floral tattoos. I was like, oh, I have a violet. Anyway. Violet, you're turning violet. Violet, you're turning violet. And if your flower, your fave flower was not included on this list, you can write to us and tell us what your fave flower was and it'll get someone lost on the did, internet. And Someone oh. <laughs> commented saying daffodil harbinger of spring. Oh, a daffodil is pretty. Yeah. I mean, when I think so many options. It's true. When I think of daffodil, I think of Alice in Wonderland. Right. The daffodils from that, the animated Alice in Wonderland. Mm. What about it. the poppies from Wizard of Oz? I think poppies are beautiful. Um crazy about the opium thing <laughs> right right but what can you do what can you do well it's nature. that's flowers for you yeah it's nature um shall, shall we get into our <laughs> heights and shites let's get into the heights and shites which really are just more heights these days i i, ooh, I do have a shite today oh excellent should i start with the shite just to kind of get us a little riled Let's up starting to low no, all right higher from there <laughs> okay cool so this is like even though it is a shite, I'm like stretching it because I'm not trying to drag this constructor in any way. But, you know, just something that I wanted to bring up and I want to ask Grace her opinion. So I'm assuming you did not do the Sunday, June 4th, New York Times. You are correct. Okay. Good puzzle. I enjoyed the puzzle. Very good by uh, Raphael Musa. The theme was pride. When you open the puzzle, you see the rainbow throughout the grid online. I'm actually right. curious if you did the puzzle like in the newspaper, did it have the colors printed for the pride flag? Let me know. Oh, yeah, that is interesting. I saw it. I saw it on Twitter, like a screenshot of it. Okay. I was excited. I was like, oh, my God, a pride, you know, puzzle. I, you know, you and I like themed puzzles, first of all. We like, we love that especially stuff. themes like with colors in the grid or like shapes or something. Mm-hmm. Like we're an easy sell on those. So I was excited. The revealer um, was 57 across with 58 across. What's represented by this puzzled colored stripes? And across the two answers was pride and then flag. Amazing. My bone, the bone that I have to pick with this puzzle is that there was really no like queer trivia within the puzzle at all. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the colored flag of the, the colors in the puzzle, those clues had nothing to do with pride. And I was kind of like, what an interesting theme to not include any sort of queer history, queer trivia, or, you know, like the most queer we got was Little Nas X was in the puzzle. You know what I mean? Like right. that was like, whatever. <clears throat> so the way that it worked is the each color has an answer for it but it's not related to the actual color of the stripe this clue that sits next to the colored stripe has a colored clue answer for instance uh 17 across was 
the color red, and the clue was intermittently, and the answer was on and off. So that Mm -hmm. was what was sitting in the red stripe. And you're like, okay. 18 across, which sits next to 17 across, was they're right on on an election map or a description of 17 across. And the answer is red states. So it says red states, but red states has nothing to do with pride unless you're thinking about how the red states are trying to states that vote against lgbtqia Uh, people exactly um another example 37 across olympic no-no olympics no-nos and the answer was steroids and this was across the color orange and then um 33 across screwdriver component or a description of 37 across was orange juice and like juice is obviously uh, a you know slang for steroids i think there's more connecting these clues than just right whatever but the point being that you could have used the stripes to ex- talk about the colors of the pride flag or to give interesting you know tr- history about pride and you know raise lgbtq awareness especially in, in these times. yeah especially in troubling times i feel like if this was a new yorker that's what would have happened but it wasn't the new yorker has like queer clues like just in their regular Baseline. puzzles i hate to even say like queer clues too because then I that know. makes it seem like that's different like different than any other type of trivia just because the answer happens to be someone who mm-hmm. is queer this puzzle felt strangely devoid of anything queer yeah considering it was a pride puzzle um yeah and that that's you know we really don't do hits and shits or we don't do shits that much anymore because we try to be more like understanding of a constructor. And also we understand how difficult it is now to construct a puzzle. And it usually, well, the th- also the f- that the editors change stuff too. Like it's not all yeah, the constructor. Exactly. But you know, that this was one of the ones I was kind of like, ah, sad. Yeah. Opportunity missed. That's not to say that I didn't learn some things um, or one thing, one across in this puzzle blanks number cognitive limit to how many relationships a person can maintain and the answer is dunbar so dunbar's number so i looked this up i didn't really do too much but i thought this was interesting dunbar's this is from wikipedia dunbar's number is a suggested cognitive limit to the number of people with whom one can maintain stable social relationships relationships in which an individual knows who each person is and how each person relates to other to the other person i'd never heard of that but that's interesting what's the number I think it's different per person, depending yeah. dependent on your brain size. That's as far as I got when I was looking, and I was like, I don't have time to dig into this, but I was interesting. like, that's that interesting. That is cool. Yeah. I wonder, does it count like your family too? Right. That's a good question. I know that I have like a very limited social battery, but I don't know if that's. You got a low to... Dunbar number? That's what you should just tell people to be like, I got a low Dunbar number. <laughs> I should. I'll use that as my excuse. Um, this was something, a throwback to one of Grace's topics, 62 across. I just thought this was funny because you basically corrected a clue when you did your puzzle. So I was like, I want to know if this is true. Um, 12th most common street name per the U.S. Census Bureau. And the answer was Maple. And I'm like, that sounds like it could be right. But when Grace did her topic on street names, the clue that was in the puzzle that she got her topic from was wrong, according to her research. Right. And, you know, there's new street names popping up all the time. That sounds right, because, like, trees is one of the most, or I think tree is the most popular category mm-hmm. of, you know, street names. So mm-hmm. I believe it. Yeah. And there, I mean, I, basically all the streets in my town growing up were sh- tree names of some sort. Mm-hmm. If it wasn't, like, Main Street, it was a tree name. I grew up on a tree street. Um, right. <clears throat> and that's just me doing crazy New Jersey things. That's what I have from that puzzle. Well, let's see. I did the Friday New Yorker by Ella Dershowitz, and it's so interesting. On the like summary page, it says Ella Dershowitz and Ella Dershowitz. So I was like, "What is this? Does she have like a mom with the same name?" But then when I went to the actual puzzle at the bottom, it said Ella and Amy Lucido. So uh, 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 uh. I don't know. I guess it was also Amy who had another puzzle in the new yorker that i did later in the week but oh yes there are a couple that i liked um from that one 14 across two for rugrats chucky finster the answer was age and yes i knew that i know all their ages um 
23 across, princess, oh no, sorry, <laughs> that's not one, um, 58 across, oscillating exercise device of infomercial fame, or how to arrive at the four strings of circled letters in this puzzle. So this was the revealer, okay. and the answer was shake weight, which is just kind of funny, because that's like a meme, you know. Yes. Thing, but so in the clue there would be like across answers with circled letters all next to each other. Um, for example, seventeen across. The question was stat monitored by hay fever sufferers, and the answer was pollen count. So n cow was um, circled, and then if you rearrange those, it's ounce. So it's a shake weight. Like that's how kind of they all were. So thirty five across. That must be a joke. Answer was you're not serious, <laughs> and the e. N-O-T-S was circled, and then that, if you switch, shake it around, it spells stone. So it was all, like, weights yes. shifted around. Did you ever have a shake weight or know anybody with a shake weight? I feel like I did know someone with a shake weight, but no, I never had one. <laughs> we had one at our, like, the house we lived in. There were six of us that lived there in college. and mm -hmm. uh, Or was it, now the, mem the memories are fading, but it was a party uh, foul thing you had to do the shake wave as like a party foul like because we oh don't party God. way too much but yeah amazing um and then i also like 67 across skeevy sorts slangily and the answer was creepos creepos nice <laughs> um is that what you have from that puzzle yes i'm gonna keep us on the new york times uh <laughs> sorry you're good uh, I'm going to keep us on the New York Times, the Friday, June 2nd New York Times by John Ubank. One across, and I'm sorry if this is uh, derogatory, but I'm going to say it anyway because it was in the New York Times. Don't come for me. But I just thought this was funny. Um, police officers in British slang, and the answer is plods. We have plenty of slang here for police officers in the U.S. And so I'm like, I read this and I was like, this can't be derogatory. Like, if I'm not going to make people upset by saying this on air, am I? Oh, well, I did anyway, but I just thought that was funny. I was like, oh, you learn something new every day. Plods. Um, yes, agree. 23 across, something uh, outstanding in its field, question mark? A scarecrow. That would have been a perfect answer. It was stock. You were in the right, you know, you got nice. this trick. Um, 56 across, general motor, question mark? I don't know. Armored car. Hmm. Very good. Uh, seven down. It's an uphill climb from here. And the answer is Everest Base Camp. There's all this stuff about Everest coming out now. Like, Oh, yeah. Uh, some woman had needed a rescue mission. And th these other people who were climbing like paid a Sherpa $10,000 to go rescue her. And he did. And then the other climbers like p paid the Sherpa. But one of the climbers like the lady hasn't paid me. For paying the Sherpa. Um, but the whole thing. Then now I feel like, well, people have always known this, but I feel like now it's on TikTok, it's really coming out now about how like messed up the whole Everest climbing industry oh, is. And how it's sure. basically someone's like, it's kind of poetic that there's like a mountain of dead millionaires. Yes. Like, because you know, it's so. I mean, you don't have to be a millionaire, but it's extremely expensive. I mean, at least $50,000 to climb. Right. Um, usually more, I think. People are saying the average is like 100000 now to spend to go. And That's you, crazy. Like, you, uh, people die. And, and the problem, like, why people, someone was like, I can't believe, like, the Sherpa, like, wouldn't save the lady unless he was paid $10,000. And people were like, you, it's like a death mission to go and save someone because it's, like, so difficult. But the, or... Sorry, I heard that they actually prefer to be called porters. Sherpas, okay. like anyone who lives in that area, but the okay. people who work on the mountain are porters. But okay. they are more acclimated to the, you know, altitude. But porters still die all the time on of Mount course. Everest as well. Yeah. Um, they, they Obviously, they have more experience than, like, the average Joe climbing. And, like, they're more acclimated to the altitude. But it's just as dangerous for joe schmo from new york city to climb mount everest as it is for a porter you know like right. it's not like they have some sort of superpower that you don't of course they're gonna want you to pay them because they might be dying up there with that woman too yeah and i also think when you climb you have to sign a contract saying that you're like if you go off the trail or whatever like you might not be saved because right. it's just like too 
difficult to save people. But anyways, if you want to listen, Chelsea did a really interesting topic on it. So if you want to listen to that, um, <laughs> ask us what the episode is because I don't remember off the top of my head. I, but. yeah. Well, um, I was remembering one of our very, very early, early episodes. Um, it was around the time in, I think, was it 2019 when we started the podcast or 2018? Mm-hmm. I cannot remember. But it was around the time when like all the stuff was coming out where people were lining up there's like huge cues right, to get to the top happening. and it's still happening. But yeah. I remember when that like first, you know, it was coming back to like public consciousness and one of our opening bits uh, for one of our very early episodes, like episode two or three, I think was about the, the lines to get up to the top of Everest. And it's like, yeah, all these like really rich white people are just paying to like stand in the line and maybe die. It's like, why are you doing this? Yeah. Well, teach their own, right? Oh yeah, I think we were like, you're paying, you're paying fifty thousand dollars to die at the top of Mount Everest. You could die down here for free. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, to each their own. But I feel like there's a lot to be said about. There's definitely a lot going on there, and a lot of like, um, I mean, it's it's very complicated situation. People are like the porters are being exploited, but. They also, you know, they make a lot of money being porters compared to the average salary Yeah. Um, in Nepal. So right. what are, like, they're, you know, you're yeah. supporting your family. It's, it's, there's a lot of different factors that, that have created what it is today. I had to read that stupid Everest book in um, the Crack Hour book. Uh, the one where he writes about climbing to Everest. And I had to read it in, like, 7th or 8th grade. Anyway, I feel like there are going to be other people that are listening to this that when I say, like, John Krakauer, I think, is the author, they're going to know what book this was. Um, God, I hated it because it stressed me out. And after reading the book, I was like, why is anybody doing this? Anyway, it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, that's where my anxiety was born from, from reading that book. But that's what I have. Wait, that's all I have from that puzzle. You feel free to take over. Right. Um, I did the Tuesday, June 6th, New Yorker by Wina Liu. Um, Six across parliament members, question mark. And the answer was owls, because like a group of owls is called a parliament. Cute. I thought you were going to talk about cigarettes. No. (laughs) Um, 15 across place where both employees and clients might get tips. The answer is nail salon. Cute. I want to get my nails done. By the way. Well, you should. I don't because I'm saving money because my cat is like deathly ill. <laughs> and he costs know, me like a I million know, dollars I every know. week. Um, okay. 18 across means of gaining extra abilities in a video game. Cheat code, which reminds me of the Sims topic Sims, that I did. of course. Last time. Um, 25 across, it's long and has special characters. The answer was strong password. That's a good clue. I like that. Um... Three down, one rolling around in salt, perhaps. Winter tire. Nice. 52 down, initials that might accompany lipstick marks. The answer, swock, sealed with a kiss. Oh, I was like, XOXO. Nice. I guess XOXO is not initials, technically. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Doesn't mean hugs and kisses, I don't know. Yeah, I haven't a clue. We'll have to figure it out. figure it out. No way to know. No way to know. Is that what you have from that puzzle? Yes. I'll stick at the New Yorker, the Monday, June 5th New Yorker by Natan Last. I liked 14 across, quote, I won't judge. The answer was, you do you. Thought that was funny. 32 across, board flipper, perhaps. Sore loser. I just liked sore Hmm. loser. And it's like, if you ever play a a game with somebody and they are a board flipper, red flag, red flag. Uh, this one's for you, Grace. 41 across. Name on the side of the SkyCycle X2 rocket used in an attempted jump over the Snake River Canyon. And the answer is evil. Because oh, evil, evil has evil. tried to yeah. jump. Well, he had tried to jump over a couple canyons or whatever. Um, these are, I think this these next two clues were my favorite just because of the way that they were positioned over like one was stacked on top of each other and they're not necessarily related but i was like this is funny because i see tiktoks about these all the time 49 across seinfeldian fashion sense 
And the answer is Normcore, which is mm-hmm. funny. And I do love Normcore. But it was sitting on top of 51 across, excessively quaint. And the answer is Twee, which is another type of fashion sense. Like, think Zoe right. Deschanel and 500 Days of Summer, like, Twee. So I just like that Normcore was sitting over top of Twee. It was very cute. Um, and that's what I have from that puzzle. Um, I feel like I'm... You done? I'm done. I All right, I'm gonna. Done. I'll just talk with about the Amy Lucida one, and I'll be done because you talked about okay. another Amy one. But this is the Amy puzzle that you did by yourself, the Wednesday, June seventh, New Yorker, uh, one across pain of the stomach or heart, perhaps ache. ache. Yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, this is great. Sixteen across, do a whole lot of nothing. The answer was fart around. <laughs> Very good. Um, 19 across, favorite person say, but favorite is spelled with a U, O-U-R-I-T, which is the key here. And the answer is best mate instead of best friend. Um, 54 across, sources of a low level odor, question mark. Stinky feet. Oh my God. Um, and there are others and Amy's puzzles are the ones that we can just basically read from top to bottom and be like, this is a good mm-hmm. one, this is a good one, this is a good one. Um, it was a good week for puzzles. Yeah. I think. It was. It was. Shall, shall we flip our coin? I'm going to flip the coin now. I'm flipping we really it. are chatty today. Yeah, we really are. Okay. I'm flipping the coin now. Tails. Oh, little little me. All right, little all right. Grace. Uh, my clue is from the June fourth Washington Post Sunday puzzle by Ooh. Evan Bernholz. Um, forty-one across. Number of blots in the Rorschach ink blot test. Oh, I don't know. And the answer is ten. Okay. There's 10, and it's not like blots on page, like there's 10 different images in the yeah, Rorschach yeah. test, which I didn't realize either. I thought it was just like a random, like it was all random, but right. no, specifically picked out. And uh, yeah, I'm going to talk the about the Rorschach, Rorschach ink block okay. test. And I do have trouble pronouncing that word. So if it I mess up what the it correct is. pronunciation is Rorschach. Okay. But sometimes I stumble, so. Just I would say Rorschach, so don't 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 beat yourself up about it. Right. Well, that's just from the one thing I read online. It said it was like roar like a lion and then shock like a shockwave. So Got it. All right. <clears throat> the Rorschach test, probably one of the most famous forms of psychological tests, thanks mm. to its prevalence in movies and TV shows, right? You see yeah. it like all the time. I think a lot of people are familiar with it because they've seen it in a movie, not because they actually know anyone who's taken it or has taken it themselves, but exactly. Let's talk about it. Um, I got most of my information from an, two articles: one in the Guardian called "Can We Trust the Rorschach Test" by Damien Searles, and one from Simply Psychology called "Rorschach Inkblot Test: Definition, History, and Interpretation" by Mia Bell Frothingham. These so. titles are so snappy <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> I know sometimes it's like you guys need to tighten it up a bit. Tighten it up. But to be fair, the Simply Psychology was more just like an informational, you know, it wasn't like a true article. Of course, of course. All right. So let's talk about the history. The idea that you could use someone's interpretation of an ambiguous design to like figure something out about their personality did not start with the Rorschach test. Hmm. In fact, our friend Alfred Bonet, who helped create the IQ test, thought about using ink blots as a way to test creativity. Okay. He didn't end up doing it, but if you do okay. want to learn more about the IQ test in Mensa and how the IQ test is also kind of bunk, you can listen to episode 144, come out on top. All right. Um. But the Rorschach test was the first systematic approach of its kind. It was developed in 1921 by a Swiss psychologist named Hermann Rorschach. So it was relatively recent. Like, mm. Hermann had two kids and they both, one of them died in like 2020 and the other one died in 2006. So wow. Okay. Um, one of Hermann's favorite games to play as a child was Klexigraphy, which involved... Um, <laughs> Like, you would create an ink blot, and then you would develop story. You would, like, draw around it, like, and then develop ah. a story or a poem that had to do with what it was. So, in fact, he loved this game so much that his childhood friends nicknamed him Klex, which is the German word for ink blot. 
That is hilarious. Right. So, Klex, a.k.a. Herman, kept this interest into adulthood. He eventually became a psychologist, and he was working at a psychiatric hospital in Switzerland. He studied patients and control subjects with hundreds of hand-drawn blots, or, like, hand-created blots. And he noticed that people with schizophrenia responded to the blots differently from patients with other diagnosis, diagnoses or disorders. Mm. So then he developed a systematic approach using ink blots as a testing tool to evaluate like this type of, you know, cognition, personality traits, and to diagnose certain psychological disorders, mainly mm -hmm. schizophrenia. Okay. So out of the hundreds of blots he made and used in his research, he narrowed it down to 15 to put in his book, Psychodiagnostic. Hmm. Um, for two years, he was trying to get this book published, but he had no takers. One of the articles I read said that, like, uh, it was very expensive to print these books because the ink blots, like, to print sure. an ink block, because it took a lot of ink, whatever. So finally, in 1921, a publisher said that they were willing to publish the book, but it could only be 10 ink blots. Hence, why there's 10 ink blots in the Rorschach test as referenced in the crossword clue. Okay. So it's a set of 10. So no one knows how he determined, like, which blots to use out of the hundreds and like mm. there's not a lot of notes about how he created the blots like the research around it you know on yeah. why he chose what he chose so but he basically chose these 10 published the book and then sadly herman died a year after the book was published from a ruptured appendix at the age of 37 so wow he didn't really even get to see it become like what it is now know. right um, and he originally created the test mostly to diagnose schizophrenia, but since um, the 1930s, it was used more as, like, a personality test. Okay. Um, after his death, the test was improved by other scientists, including a man named John Exner. Exner developed a standardized system of interpretation. The Ex Exner System of Scoring, formerly known as the Comprehensive System, was published in 1974 and is now the standard method of administering and scoring the test. So there was like a lot. I mean, some of the stuff I was reading about the test, I was like, I don't understand this. Like it takes a really long time to be able to interpret Rorschach test results. So. Okay. Like, you know, you have to like be researching it for years to mm -hmm. be someone who could interpret results. So there's sure. no way I can like explain it over the okay, podcast. But I... basically a lot of different scientists were like working on it. They finally came out with a standardized system of, you know, scoring someone's mm -hmm. answers but mm -hmm. so let's go into how the test is administered so okay. there's 10 official ink blots each printed on separate white cards five ink blots are black and gray two are black gray and have red in them and then three are multicolored without any black at all oh, they're kind okay. of like they kind of look like tie-dye okay um during administration the examiner will sit next to you and this helps them see what you see and then these are the steps how the test is taken one the examiner presents you one card at a time and asks you what might this be two you give a response you're free to interpret the image however you want you can take however long you want to interpret each card and you can give as many responses as you want you can also hold the cards in any position whether it's upside down or sideways hmm. step three um, your examiner records everything you say no matter how trivial they'll note the time it takes you for each response the position the card is being held your emotional expressions etc during the test and step four, um, once you go through all the ink blots once, your examiner will take you through each ink blot a second time. The goal of this is not to get new information, but to help your examiner see what you see. Hmm. They'll ask you to identify where you see what you originally saw and what features made it look like that. So on average, hmm. it takes 1.5 hours to administer and score the test. So it takes kind wow. of a while. And how is it scored? There's a couple different things it's scored on. Um, one, like based on what you see, uh, this is called the content. So different categories of content is if you see a whole human, if you see a human detail, like just an ear or just a hand, mm -hmm. if you see a human detail that's fictional or mythological, if you see an animal detail, sex or nature. Okay. And then there's location or how much of the ink plot you use to answer the question. Um, D is marked if you, if a commonly described part of the blot was used. DD is marked if an uncommonly described or unusual detail was used so basically they're like comparing your interpretations to like the general population got it um s is if the white space in the background was used and w is if the whole ink blot was used to answer the question hmm. 
The next um, set of criteria is the determinants or what the examiner considers the reasons why you see what you see. For example, you might say you see a flower on one of the cards because it's red. So color would be the determinant of that answer. Mm -hmm. So the six broad categories of determinants are color, form, movement, pairs and reflections, and shadings. But these are further broken down into 26 categories and more than one can be used in a single response. So interpreting these results is like extremely complex. In addition to the scores themselves, the psychologist is also looking at the behaviors expressed while taking the test. Like if you had quick responses, maybe that could indicate a personality that is comfortable in social situations. That seems a little too easy. Um, and then they also look to see if you have a similar response to other people. But what's interesting Mm -hmm. is that they can only like these normal responses changes based change based on where you are. So for Mm. example, Europeans almost never talk about texture as one of their determinants, though it is quite common in the U S to do that. Interesting. Um, in France, card eight is often seen as a chameleon and, but in the U S that would be like an extremely unusual response. Interesting. In Scandinavia, Cartu is often seen as a Christmas elf. Cute. <laughs> Excuse me. But just specifically in Scandinavia. So kind of like it changes based on, you know, where you are. Which I think I, I can understand why that might be true. Right. So is this test legit? A lot of people think that it's pseudoscience, similar to a lot of personality tests. Mm-hmm. Um there's a couple of reasons why people don't like it. Firstly, there wasn't a universal scoring system until 1974 with John Exner. And even then, some experts cautioned against the Exner system, saying that it might lead to overdiagnosing psychotic disorders. It also lacks reliability, meaning that you can get the same result or it lacks reliability, meaning that you can get different results from the same person doing the same, getting the same response. It all like depends on how the examiner interprets their response like it's extremely subjective based on the examiner um there is some newer research that points to it actually being able to determine schizophrenia specifically which was herman's initial use for it yeah um but potentially also alzheimer's interesting um and while the test is less popular in the u.s apparently according to this article it is still pretty popular in argentina and japan okay some, like, fun facts about the test. Yes. Um, <clears throat> Herman developed the 10 blots with, like, a structured disorder. So the cards might appear messy. He felt like they couldn't appear too perfect because they couldn't present as deliberately crafted. Otherwise, like... Like, this you know. is deliberately a butterfly or whatever. Right. Um, and then he also omitted any perceptible brush strokes or other indications that they had been handmade. Hmm. They're all symmetrical, uh, making them more pleasing to the eye, but also making it fair to left-handed people. Like, that way, Interesting. It's, you know, the test is the same. Interesting. This is, like, some initial interpreting that's out there. Uh, if you see a lot of food, then that means you might... That might mean you are unusually dependent in relationships. If you saw a lot of sex, then that might point to schizophrenia. Depression was supposed to improve the sharpness of the forms that you see while elation dulls it. So Herman thought that people were depressed because their perception is too good. They're too aware of their own shortcomings and responsibility for their failures. <laughs> well, well, I feel like, you know, a lot of, t- uh, yeah. Yeah, so yep. you might be onto something. <laughs> um, if you see images in motion, then that might point to you being creative. Uh, but in Herman's initial research, he decided that the inkblot test could not be used on teenagers as they had too much in common with the clinically insane. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> right. Um, okay. In Maya Angelou's memoir, she says she had to take a Rorschach test before she was allowed to become a San Francisco streetcar conductor. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, Sarah Lawrence College, which is the college that had that sex cult that the Hulu <gasps> documentary came out yes. about, but other it's a very like artsy, fartsy, like liberal, creative, yeah, you know, college. But they used to administer the test to all incoming freshmen, citing a time what? where freshmen had seemed quote normal, but her Rorschach test set up some set off some red flags. And when they looked into her more, they saw that she had once gone after her sister with a knife. Oh, um, there. 
are more stories about the Rorschach test like this. Like if you get into really reading about like people who defend the Rorschach test, there's stories where people are seemingly very well adjusted, but they scored weirdly on the test. And then later you find out that they are extremely disturbed. So that might be why the the test has like continued to live on because there are like psychologists who maybe were really skeptical, but then they saw firsthand that the test can reveal things that aren't easily perceptible. Like there's one popular story that goes around of, a guy who took, he was like going to work out of school. He took a Rorschach test and the psychologist was like, there's something like the Rorschach test makes me think that he might be unstable. I don't think you should be working with kids, mm-hmm. but like couldn't give any more information other than that. And he seemed like otherwise, you know, well adjusted, but they didn't end up letting him work there. And then years later, that psychologist got a call from another psychiatrist who's like, I'm seeing this one patient. Like, I just want to ask you you know, about the Rorschach test or whatever, it came out that the guy was, like, a pedophile. (gasps) And, you know, he eventually got caught or whatever. He was at a different psychiatrist who called back to this original one who, like, saw something weird on the Rorschach test. So there's, like, weird stories like that, of course, you know. Well, I mean, I don't know much about the Rorschach test other than what you're telling me right now. But, like, Mm -hmm. I don't think it's far-fetched to... to assume or to guess that people who have something going on perceive reality different than, say, people who don't have something going on. In the same way that neurodivergence people see or understand the world differently than neurotypical people. Do you know what I mean? Like, Right. It's more about what you see and, like, what you see with your eyes versus, like, how you perceive thing. Which brings me to the final quote that I'm going to end with <gasps> okay. from the Guardian article. In principle, the Rorschach test rests on one basic premise. Seeing is an act not just of the eye, but of the mind, and not just of the visual cortex or some other isolated part of the brain, but of the whole person. If that is true, a visual task that calls upon enough of our perceptual powers will reveal the mind at work. <gasps> Interesting. So. This reminds me of two of your other topics. The color topic right and the translation topic or Mm -hmm. bilingual topic you know um how differently world like perception of the world can be dependent on various factors whether it's Mm -hmm. some sort of mental thing going on or cultural or whatever Mm um the mind is insane so something like the rorschach test being able to potentially pick up on some like underlying banana shit doesn't seem ugh, totally unlikely to me. Right. I mean, I don't think it's like a fail. A lot of people said like it often misdiagnosed like depression. Like I, I feel like maybe with that stuff, mm. you know, it's not a sure thing, but I do feel like it could give, you know, a psychologist a look into something. But Weirdly, it's used a lot in, like, child custody court cases. That's so weird. Yeah. I mean, it's still used in court sometimes. So it's, like, it's, on one hand, like, it's seen as legitimate in a lot of ways. But I feel like because there's no, there's not, like, enough proof, like, you know, actual research done on a control control group like saying it's right 100% of the time that it's not reliable right but there's more research coming out about it that like yeah maybe with they say Alzheimer's patients like you can often they won't see humans in a lot of the blots Mm. which is like a really common um Mm. thing to see but by the way yes all the blots are online even though they're not supposed to be like I think her well obviously they didn't have internet back then but they aren't supposed to be online because you're really not supposed to be like looking at it before you know if you well, yeah. take a test yeah because um you don't want to see like oh what do other people see so exactly sorry, I spoiled that for <laughs> there's That's some okay. of y'all out there but you'll definitely <laughs> see the chameleon now yeah I've, um, I, even if you're not in france but <laughs> i i've already had my psychological analyzing done i don't think i'll be taking the rorschach anytime soon so right Right. But, but it's just, it's so interesting. The brain. The brain, right? Mm-hmm. Grace does all these topics on the brain and how, depending on where you are, you might perceive the world differently. So mm-hmm. sure. if you're interested in the color topic or the translation topic, or sorry, no, the bilingual topic. She did also do a translation topic, but yes. just but let us know. The bilingual topic is more cerebral. Let yes. us know. Point you yes. in the right direction. More brainy. 
Um, okay, cool. Should we move on to my topic? Yes, let's. Let's do it. My topic comes from the Friday, June 2nd New York Times puzzle by John Ubank. 25 down. Attendance at a Saturnalia. And the answer is cupbearer. Mm. We're going to be talking about Saturnalia today. Okay. Does that ring a bell to you at all? Saturnalia. Yes, it does. I feel like it's come up in these different, like, holiday We've done topics. a lot of pagan yes. holidays that have been turned into Christian holidays. A hundred percent. The big one Grace did was episode 67, Tradition, Flip It and Reverse It, where she talks about Christmas or, like, pagan holidays that... The winter solstice, basically. Uh, that basically became kind of Christian traditions. Um, and Saturnalia comes up in that topic um, a little bit. But I'm going to be talking specifically about Saturnalia, the holiday. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does sort of intersect a little bit with the topics um, from episode 67. So if you're interested in learning more about like pagan holidays, listen to episode 167. Or sorry, not 167, just plain old 67. Oh, go way back. We're going way back there. Um, so far back that when I went into, um, look, I like searched Saturnalia and all of like our research document to see like, did we, cause this seemed familiar to me do this and nothing came up. And I was like, that's really mm-hmm. weird. I know that we did a topic on this potentially, but was in one of the ones that I accidentally deleted the right. research from. So <laughs> that's on, know. that's on me. So I went back and I listened to the episode and I was like, okay, I can do this topic. It's not like she did a topic on Saturnalia. Okay. Anyway. Saturnalia. Saturnalia was an ancient Roman festival and holiday in honor of the god Saturn. Um, It was originally held on one day, December 17th of the Julian calendar. We've done a topic on calendars as well. If you're Mm -hmm. curious, let us know. Um, But later it was expanded to multiple days of festivities um, all the way through December 23rd. So uh, through through ancient Roman history, Saturnalia has gone from one day to two days back to one day to three days, all the way to seven days, back to two days. It's like it flexed quite a lot, depending on who was ruling at the time. Mm -hmm. But um, I think it spent a lot of time as three days and then a lot of time as a seven-day festival. But what was Saturnalia all about? Firstly, Saturnalia was the most popular holiday on the ancient Roman calendar. Why was that? Saturnalia was a festival to honor the god Saturn, which was an agricultural deity who was said to have ruled over the world during the Greek Golden Age. Okay, what the hell does that mean? So the concept of the Greek Golden Age comes from Hesiod's 800-line epic poem called Works and Days. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing Hesiod wrong, but that's the phonetic way to do it. Um, In this uh, account... From Hesiod's poem, the five ages of man, um, one of which is the golden age, was covered. So Hesiod talks about a bunch of different ages, uh, specifically five ages of man and like two other ages of something else. One of the ages of man is called the golden age. And so a lot of times if you're looking into like Greek or Roman history or traditions, you'll see a lot of things about the golden age. And they're not talking about like, oh, the golden age when things were just better. They're talking, they're referencing Hesiod's definition of the golden age, which was a specific Mm -hmm. period in time, quote unquote specific. Anyway, according to Hesiod, the golden age was the mythical mythical first period of man. The people of the golden age were formed by or for the Titan Cronus, whom the Romans called Saturn. So we're talking Mm -hmm. about Greek traditions right now, but Saturnalia is a Roman tradition. They kind of they're symbiotic. They're intertwining, yeah. right? So Cronus, the Titan Cronus, is Saturn. So stick with me here. The Golden Age. Mortals lived like gods. They never knew anything about sorrow or toil. When they died, it was as if they were falling asleep. No one worked or grew unhappy. Spring never ended. Um, and then when people did die, they became daemons, which the it's a Greek word that later became demons who roamed the earth. Um, and then the golden age ended when Zeus and the other gods from Zeus's generation, basically the kids of the Titans overthrew 
the Titans, which if you are a millennial, then you would know that Zeus overcame the Titans because you've seen Hercules in that incredible animation sequence when they overcame the Titans. Anyway, so the Golden Age was like the time before Zeus when things were perfect. Mm-hmm. And uh, Saturnalia was a way to celebrate this mythical period of perfection um, by honoring the god Saturn. Sounds nice. It really does. The Greeks actually had their own equivalent of this festival called Cronia, because remember, Cronus is the Greek version of Saturn. So Cronia right. is the name of the holiday in for the Greeks, and it was actually celebrated in between sometime between July and August of a totally different calendar system mm-hmm. rather than Saturnalia being celebrated in midwinter. Saturn as a god was considered a righteous and benevolent ruler. Uh, he teach he taught the inhabitants of his land geographically were in Italy, imagine. Um, mm-hmm. about they he taught them about agriculture, laws, um, and once the golden age ended, people kept his memory alive through the, the celebration of Saturnalia. There are actually some writings that suggest that Saturn was less of a deity and more of like a real king. Uh, Justinus, in his writing uh, Epitome of Pompeius Trogus, says, quote, The first inhabitants of Italy were the Aborigines, whose king, Saturnus, is said to have been a man of such extraordinary justice that no one was a slave in his reign or had any private property, but all things were common to all and undivided as one estate for the use of everyone. In memory of which way of life, it has been ordered that at the Saturnalia, slaves should everywhere sit down with their masters at the entertainment, the rank of all being made equal, end quote. That sounds kind of nice. I mean, the Golden Age sounds pretty freaking yeah. awesome, right? Uh, I'm here for it. So how was Saturnalia celebrated? This Justinus quote that I just read kind of gives you a little bit of a sneak peek to how Saturnalia was celebrated, but let's get into some more specifics. Originally, Saturnalia started as a farming ritual where farmers would offer gifts and sacrifices to the gods in celebration of the winter solstice um, and the winter planting season. Remember, Saturn is the god of agriculture, so like this was happening around midwinter. It was like an agricultural thing, like we need to plant things to stay alive. Praise be to Saturn. <laughs> These early rituals eventually morphed into a holiday with a real name, Saturnalia. Um, so Saturnalia as like an f- actual festival uh, was always kicked off with a religious ceremony in the Temple of Sa- Saturn. Like wherever you m- might have lived, there was probably a Temple of Saturn or some sort of something similar. In Rome, the Temple of Saturn was constructed in the 4th century CE. Um and served as the ceremonial center for Saturnalia celebrations. Uh, On the first day of the festivities, a young pig would often be publicly sacrificed at the temple. There's also a statue of Saturn in the temple. Uh, Traditionally had uh, wooden or rather woolen bonds around its hands and feet, but during Saturnalia, those bonds were loosened to symbolize the god's liberation. This celebration or the ceremony was then followed by a free public banquet open to all with businesses and courts and schools closed so everyone could take part. Uh, Saturnalia was a time of merrymaking, like most big festivals, but it was also a time where rigid social norms were relaxed or even inverted. So if we remember the just, uh, justness quote from a little bit ago, it talks about how slaves, pe- enslaved people were supposed to be given time off during Saturnalia and to sit at the same table as their masters. And that was, the, that was true. That's what happened mm-hmm. during Saturnalia. I'm going to go through a couple of these little traditions. Um, people decorated their homes with wreaths and other greenery. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Strict Roman dress codes were overturned. So instead of wearing the formal toga, Romans of all ranks would put on a, um, a comfortable and colorful dinner dress. That was normally reserved for, like, private dinners. These were called synthesis. Um, And everyone would wear a freed man's cap, which was, like, a a cone-type hat made of felt or wool. Mm -hmm. Um, And this type of hat was usually awarded to freed people. Like, if they were enslaved and then eventually freed or, like, they paid off some sort of debt, they were given this cap to represent that they were, in fact, free. Um, 
And so everybody wore this hat during the festival to celebrate the liberty and free spirit of the holiday. Even enslaved people did not have to work during Saturnalia. They were allowed to participate in the festivities. And in some cases, they sat at the head of the table while their masters served them. Oh, good for them. Good for them. I mean, it's only for potentially one day, three days, or seven days, depending on which emperor they were living under. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not enough, for it sure. It is not but... enough, but I'm sure they had a good time. Uh, gambling, which was normally outlawed, was allowed in public during Saturnalia. Some accounts say that you were only supposed to gamble for nuts and not money in order to, like, recreate the vibe of the Golden Age. But, you know, people were gambling for money. Are you kidding right. me? Just like People are still people. <laughs> people are people. Like, when you go to, you know, Domino Park in Miami and the tour guide's like, they're not gambling for money. Wink, wink. And it's like, <laughs> you know they are. It's like, um. okay, so let me see. The little things that they would gamble with, the game was called Knuckle Bones. That's like the English translation. Um, and I'm not even going to try to read you this Greek word. Um, but essentially, the, they were like little pieces of um, some sort of like hard material that you would roll like dice or jacks. Um, and as the name implies, Knuckle Bones, they were originally made from the foot bones of a goat or a sheep, uh, which was like an easily accessible material. Right. They were later fashioned from all sorts of material, like wood, stone, and terracotta, but also fancier things like glass, bronze, gold, ivory, and precious gems. They remind me of, I cannot remember the name of them, but they're these little plastic things that we had like at the late 90s, um, and you could collect them and you would play them like jacks. They're kind of small and rectangular. Mm. Let me see if I can send you a picture of what a knuckle bone looks like. Maybe you'll remember that you'll know, know what I'm talking about from the 90s. They're like, and they all had different colors and whatever. This is what they originally looked like. In. Oh, they almost look like uh, gummy bears. But no, I don't know what you're talking mm. about. <laughs> if I, right. They also look like potentially fallen out teeth. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, they're called um, Crazy Bones. Crazy Bones. Do you remember Crazy Bones? Let me see here. I'm sending you an eBay link to Crazy Bones. Oh, yes. Yeah, I do. I do remember those. I wonder if Maybe that's what those are based off of. Yeah, they are so similar that I'm curious. I don't have the answer now, but the question has been asked, dear listeners, if you know anything about the history of roman knuckle bones and how they relate to american crazy bones please do not hesitate to reach out to me yes anyway okay so 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 uh another thing that you would do during saturnalia households would appoint a mock king or a saturnalcius princeps also known as leader of saturnalia or sometimes called the lord of misrule grace talked about the lord of misrule in one of her many pagan tradition uh topics essentially this person was chosen to reign over everyone and give silly orders like telling someone to shout embarrassing insults dance naked or chase others around the house usually a lowlier member of the household was made this figure um and this figure was responsible for making mischief during the celebrations um the idea was that he ruled over chaos rather than the normal roman order um and then the common holiday custom of hiding coins or small objects in cakes is dates back to Saturnalia because you would eat cakes and if you found the thing in the cake you could become the Lord of Misrule or the Saturnalysis Princeps which is something we still do for Mardi Gras etc. Mm -hmm. Exchanging gifts was popular at Saturnalia. Uh, One writer Marshall described the gift giving process as quote At this time of the year, when the equestrians and senators show off their party clothes, and even the emperor emperor wears a freed man's cap, accept the gift you have drawn, whether from a poor or rich man, let everyone give his guest an appropriate gift, end quote. If you have been listening for a long time, I have also covered gift giving on episode 114, Dog's Gift to Man. Um, I saw a couple references of like this Saturnalia tradition is similar to like a white elephant. Like you took mm-hmm. whatever you were given, um, which is similar to white elephant, Pollyanna, Secret Santa, that kind of thing, which we still celebrate today. 
some gifts you might receive on Saturnalia. Fattened pigs, incense, turtle doves, glass cups, ivory knuckle bones, lamps, clay statuettes, a gold hairpin, golden rings. Gold rings uh, are an interesting gift because in the Roman Republic, in the Roman Republic, because at the time of the early Roman Empire, customs um, said that only like senators and the wealthy class could wear golden rings, but things started slowly changing um, and it became a custom gift to give a golden ring at Saturnalia to somebody who might be moving up in the classes. They might not be Mm -hmm. in like the ruling class, but you could give somebody a gift of a gold ring. They were allowed to wear it and then it like helped them move up in status, which I thought was pretty interesting. It's interesting. Some of these are in the like on the first day of Christmas, you know, like that turtle does golden rings. Exactly. Um, Wax candles and oil lamps were also popular Saturnalia gifts. Um, wax taper candles called serae were common gifts to signify light returning after the solstice. Um, and wax candles were often placed as offerings to uh, on household altars to Saturn, especially during the final days of the festival. Drinking parties were an important part of Saturnalia. In the egalitarian spirit of the holiday, everyone, rich and poor, could partake. There was one account that I read that a particularly, like, thrifty scholar who, like, would not spend money, would not let his people off ever. Mm -hmm. For Saturnalia, made an allotment that everybody could have 20 cups of wine, which was, like, a huge thing for this person to do. Yeah. I thought that was pretty funny. Um, And then the traditional greeting of Saturnalia was Io Saturnalia spelled i-o and i read that there's two ways it could have possibly possibly been pronounced like eo like as two mm-hmm. syllables or one syllable godspeed trying to figure out yo. what i like yo <laughs> exactly and i read it in a couple places i couldn't really find out this is true but people think that eo saturnalia or yo saturnalia was um a precursor to ho 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 santa's oh, okay. ho 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 which i thought was pretty interesting uh, on the last day of Saturnalia celebrations, known as Sigillaria, many Romans gave their friends and loved ones small terracotta figurines known as Signillaria, um, which was supposed to be a reference to older traditions of human sacrifice. Um, and then one last thing. We talked about gift giving already, but gifting verses like poems and short <laughs> writings was also a tradition. Um and it was documented by uh, Catalyst and Marshall that this was something that people did. And a lot of people suggest that this gifting of verses was the precursor to Christmas cards. Maybe. Mm. Interesting. Um, by this point, you're probably, like, already thinking, like, did Saturnal- is Saturnalia Christmas? Like, is Saturnalia Christmas? Um, yes and no. I mean, if you listen to Grace's topic from episode 67, you'll know, you'll learn a little bit about like the church's in like the Christian church's influence on pagan holidays or like how they had to accommodate pagan traditions into Christian traditions to make the conversion of, you know. Because people didn't want to stop celebrating these pagan holidays. And, but the church was like, no, you need to be Christian. So actually, in winter, that's when we have Christmas then, even though there's, like, no actual, like, reason. I mean... Right. That, Everything that I've found know, is... That is the, really the birth of Jesus or whatever happened in the winter. Exactly. They Everything that we do have. that date because it happens to be right after Saturnalia, and people celebrate yes. then anyways. So they were like, oh, you're not celebrating Saturnalia. Now you're celebrating Christmas. You exactly. Know? Exactly that. Um, and, you know... Uh, Constantinople, that was the time when Rome went Christian and people celebrated Saturnalia for a while after, before, like, the full conversion took place. But, like, Saturnalia isn't Christmas, like, 100%. Uh, The church would adapt certain traditions that they felt were fine enough to adopt or, you know, traditions that people just wouldn't give up, like, potentially decorating the house in greenery. You know, Grace, mm-hmm. you actually talked about decorating the house of greenery on episode 67. You talked about the Lord of Misrule. Like, all of these things right. aren't just from Saturnalia. These uh, sorts of traditions happened also at Cronia in summer for the Greeks. And there right. are other cultures that have very similar midwinter festivals. Um, so all of these kind of traditions amalgamated into what we now celebrate as Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um 
Well, just think at the time, like, everything's dying. It's, like, bleak and sad outside, but evergreen trees obviously stay evergreen, so you bring them inside to kind of, like, liven up. People didn't want to give that up because they're like, no, winter's depressing, so I'm going to bring my evergreen inside. And, of course, you need, like, a massive party. Like, these people were drinking for seven days straight and gambling with their knuckle bones (laughs) and, like, the poor, you know, enslaved people were finally given some freaking respect respite uh to like sit at the head of the table um because winter especially for them was sucked they didn't have like heat the way we did they didn't have netflix (laughs) like they weren't watching like what is the big uh harry potter marathon yeah the harry potter marathon the 25 days of christmas the that new netflix show for the women love show what is it called um it's all over tiktok right the ultimatum ultimatum that was like it's like it's not quantum it's something like quantum ultimatum um they didn't have that all they had was their ivory knuckle bones their terracotta figurines and And their freedmen's cap exactly um and so that's saturnalia yo-yo saturnalia or whatever it is (laughs) very cool yeah well it's not exactly july but christmas in july much Right? Saturnalia in July? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, interesting. Crazy. Oh, those poor pagans. Seriously. I, I, um, I want it to be Christmas time only because I like, I like the vibe of the holiday. It's not necessarily right, don't, like... Don't get too, like, ahead of yourselves. Let me enjoy summer for a second, though. It's just starting to be warm. I'm I going know. on my walks. I know it, it was cool, cool this morning too, though. So I'm in a hoodie and pants today, even though it's mid June. Right, but that's that's Chicago yes, for you. Climate change and um, climate change. <laughs> well, well, another episode for the books. Yeah, thanks uh, for listening, everyone. And if you want to talk to us about Saturnalia or. Or a shock test if you've ever taken one. <laughs> then find us on Twitter at the Good Eve Girls. Or Instagram at the Good Evening Girls. Or TikTok at the Good Eve Girls. And until next time, as always, keep curious and you'll find us here next episode. Bye, everybody. Yes. Bye. Bye.